dinner. We've all got them, okay? That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking historically Christians arguing over what it means to be a Christian, over what Christians believe. And I know that sounds weird because we like to think that Christians shouldn't argue and we should be nice to each other. And I know, at least for me, I like to be liked and I like for you to agree with me. And even if you don't agree with me or don't like me, I don't want you to tell me, okay? Just smile, shake my hand, we'll all live happy lives. But historically, Christmas time has been this really beautiful, if I can say that, time where Christians have gone at it and have really explored the depths of what it means to be a Christian and what it is that Christians believe, primarily because you and I are confronted at this time of the year with the image of a baby boy. And at the same time that we look at this infant, you and I are called to call him God and called to worship him. And at times, perhaps, we don't think about how odd that is or how how deeply that goes against, I think, what we would normally think about God and think about worship and think about the way the world works. But at Christmas time, it's kind of hard to ignore the conclusions that our faith draws us towards. We look at an infant coming out of a womb and we say, good news for the Lord is here. God with us. And so Christians, historically, this has been a time where they've really kind of hammered out who is Christ? Who is this baby? What is um, God doing in the world? What is he up to in the person and work of Jesus? And one of the unfortunate things that's happened to you and I over the past few hundred years, perhaps 100 years, 50 years, the context that you and I find ourselves in is we have become theologically anemic. We have kind of shied away from the harder questions of, of theological truths. So who exactly is Christ? What exactly is happening in the incarnation? And what we've kind of done is we've kind of put everything at a lowest common denominator. And so we've created a gospel that I think would be centered around a generic love that a generic God has for us. And, and we've lost the specifics of what God's love actually looks like. And we've lost the specifics of who God actually is in the gospel revealed through the scriptures. What what is our God? Who is he? What's his being? What's his essence? And then in what way specifically and uniquely, distinctively, does he love us? Does his salvation, is his salvation accomplished among us? Um, teaching in high school, uh, I've been real confronted, really confronted with this truth that perhaps we haven't done the best job of, of training up our youth, particularly as Christians. So we're real good at bringing up Americans, Okay, um, we know the pledge. We know our American history. We know our Texas history. If you're from Texas, if you're not, you got here as fast as you could. Ha ha ha! Right? I mean, we, we train citizens really, really, really well. But when it comes to Christians, um, we've kind of trained Christians up, and I think if we're honest, it's true for us adults as well. We've, we've kind of been trained up to have this kind of generic, lowest common denominator faith. And so, what I mean by that is, in conversations I have with kids who've been in church their whole life, they have a hard time explaining what you might call some basics of the faith, like the Trinity. The truth that God is three persons, the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The God that Christians worship is Father, Son, and Spirit. Now, this is, of course, a complex and mysterious, um, very, very, very much so doctrine, but at the same time, it's kind of a basic thing for Christians, that Christians worship the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Or, or the incarnation, the truth that Jesus is God, and yet man, and how that holds together, and how that plays with each other. And, and these are concepts that we're largely unfamiliar with, or at least very, very uncomfortable with. And so one of my vows as a pastor has always been to, to make sure that you have the theological vocabulary to think of such things. Um, because I think it's important for us. I think it's important for us to not be selfish worshipers. 
and to not just be concerned with having our felt needs met, okay? Having our kind of, I think I need to learn how to be a better parent, and so I think that's what I should get out of church, right? Five steps to be a better parent. Or I think I should learn how to do my finances better, so that's what I should get out of church. Three steps to have a better, a better budget, to be able to balance my budget. Instead, to, to come to the scriptures and to learn about who God is, the truth about who he is. I think one of the reasons that we've failed in this task, I can tell you from personal experience, is because preachers are afraid of you. Right? We're afraid that our congregation will leave a sermon going, I didn't get anything out of that. I didn't, that didn't apply to my life. I didn't get anything out of that. And so, because of that fear, we come up with really nicely, nicely uh, divided three-point sermons with alliteration. Okay? They all start with B or A or C or, or whatever the letter might be. And, and we, we have these right, mnemonic devices with the four life principle applications that you can take away and that will neatly affect your life. And, and we kind of shy away, again, from, from kind of more nuanced, intricate, deep theology kind of theological truths about who God is. And in any other part of our lives, it doesn't work like this, right? So imagine that you are spending time with your love, okay? Maybe you've been dating for years and years and years. You're spending time. Maybe you've been married. Maybe you are newlyweds and you're spending time together after the wedding. Maybe you are miserable. No, I'm sorry. I mean married for like 50 years, okay? <laughs> you're sitting there. You're, you're spending, time, spending time with your love, and, and she is really pouring out to you her innermost feelings, okay? What she dreams about and thinks about and who she is at the kind of core level of her being. Imagine your response being kind of dozing in and out of sleep, right? And waiting, I'm sorry, can you get to where this affects my life? You're going to wrap this up in like three ways that this is going to help me be a better person? No, because you have this, this desire to know her, right? You have this desire. It's enough for you, right? It's relevant enough for your life to know more about her to see more of her, to experience closer communion to her. I think this is the way it should be with you and I as we come to worship. Um, A sermon's priority, I think, should not be to meet a felt need, but to draw our attention to God and to sometimes the mystery and the beauty of who he is and what he's accomplished in the world. And so um, this morning in our series, as we continue our series on Incarnation Matters, I want to give you some vocabulary to think about the incarnation, to think about what's happening in this baby being born who at the same time we're calling God and we're calling each other to worship and to come bring praise and obedience and adoration to. And so um, I want to suggest this morning that there's a phrase we can use to sum up the heart of the Christmas season. Okay, it's the first thing you've got in your worship guide. I think if we can kind of capture this phrase, kind of put it inside of ourselves, um, we would be well equipped to think on and celebrate the season of Advent as we wait and prepare to celebrate Christ's birth. The phrase is this. The heart of the Christmas season, I think, encapsulated here. The Son of God became man so that men might become sons and daughters of God. A phrase made famous by church fathers, echoed over and over throughout the years, adopted by many as kind of their motto for seeing salvation and seeing the incarnation and seeing the truth of Christmas. The Son of God became man so that men, so that humans could become sons and daughters of God. This kind of great exchange that takes place in the act of God becoming a human being, being born from the womb of Mary, growing up among us, teaching, preaching, healing, ministering, dying, 
and rising again. Um, we're in John chapter 1, which is the kind of classic expression of the incarnation. So what I want to do this morning is just kind of draw out some truths from this phrase. Okay, The Son of God became man so that men might become the sons and daughters of of God. I don't think explain is the right word. It's kind of this mysterious truth, um, but hopefully we can highlight some ways that this is true and beautiful to us. So John chapter 1, we'll pick it up in verse 1, if you would read with me here. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness is not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. This is John the Baptist. We heard about him in our second scripture reading this morning. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light, that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, watch this right here in verse 12, who believed in his name. I'm going to ask you a question. I need you to participate here. He gave the right to become, what's the word? Children Children of God. He gives the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh. Verse 14, this is kind of the heart of it all right here. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Real quick here, again, go back to what we just pointed out. We've seen the one and only Son, but this one Son has now made it possible for you and I to be children, to be sons and daughters. He, the Son of God, became man, became flesh, so that we might have the right to be the children of God, to be the sons and daughters of God. Verse 15, John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. And from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. So we'll spend the next two weeks Um, fleshing this kind of passage out uh, in more depth. So this morning what I want to look at is the act of the incarnation. What exactly is happening when God becomes flesh and and kind of what the implication is of that. And then next week we'll look at how how, how God has revealed himself to us through Jesus. That in Jesus we see fully who God is. And then in our fourth week, right before Christmas, we'll, we'll talk about how God um, also reveals to us what humanity is supposed to be like through Jesus. In the life of Jesus, we see what a true human being uh, looks like. And so this is kind of the way we'll flesh out this passage. This morning, though, I want to center in on verse 14 here. Okay, um, The word became flesh and dwelt among us. This is a hugely important verse um, as the... The church tries to understand who this baby boy is and what exactly has happened in his birth, in his coming into the world. Now, I'm going to give you some theological vocabulary this morning, okay? And the the purpose of it is not to be esoteric, and it's not to sound smart. I am smart, but it's not to sound smart, okay? Uh, It's not to confuse you. It's not to make you think, um, wow, this is really mysterious and really deep. It's just because of this. The church has for 2,000 years thought about how to best talk about this, and this is the best we've done. So if you, you're sitting there and you're thinking, man, there's got to be a better way to do this, okay? This is so confusing. This is so obtuse. Write the book, okay? Write the book. Give it to the church. She'll talk about it. She'll see if it works or if it doesn't work, and we'll go from there. 
So far, this is the best we've been able to come up with. The reason these words are important, the reason these words should be in your vocabulary, is because this is how the church has best decided to express these truths. As a Christian, it should be relevant to us who God is and what he's done um, in the person and work of Jesus. So the word became flesh. Now, th- this is called the incarnation, okay? The incarnation um, from the, the Latin word carne, okay, flesh. God has become enfleshed. God has become flesh. The word has become flesh. Now, two concepts you need here to understand this. The first is the concept of the Trinity, okay? This is something we want to emphasize a lot here at FC Cube. You'll notice we try to structure our worship in Trinitarian ways, our prayers Try to be Trinitarian. We want to speak about the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Before we take communion, we give thanks to the triune God, the Father, to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit. As Christians, this is the God that we worship. Now, you see this context here in um, chapter 1, verse 1. If you go back to the beginning of John, he says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So you have these two beings here, these two persons, the Word and God. And you see at one and the same time that they are separate, the Word was with God. Yet they are the same. The word was God. This gets spelled out in the rest of John. The Holy Spirit comes in and then throughout the scriptures. And you get this idea, this doctrine, this belief of the Trinity. Which is Christians believe that God is eternally existing in three persons. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Unity and diversity. They are distinct and separate persons. Yet they all share the same substance. The same essence. They all share whatever it is we would call divinity. They are all God. Whatever it is you might say is true of God. Christians have a story that he's omnipotent. He's omnipresent. He is eternal. He created all things. Whatever is true of God is true of the Father and true of the Son and true of the Holy Spirit. All three persons. That's why they're all three equally worshipped and glorified. And, and for Christians, we believe that God has eternally been like this. This is not just something he started to do one day. He divided himself up into three persons and started to work this way. This is how he exists in three persons. And so from all of eternity, God has been in community with himself, which is why Christians say at the heart of who God is, he's love. First John, he is relating to himself in perfect relationship and self-sacrificial Service. The Father loves the Son and the Spirit perfectly, and the Son loves the Father and the Spirit perfectly, and the Spirit loves the Father and the Son perfectly. And, and the triune God creates a world in hopes that that world would enjoy the love and joy that He has enjoyed for all of eternity. And if you know the story, the world rebels, the world goes its own way and finds death and darkness because there is nothing but death and darkness outside of the triune God. But God devises a plan to rescue his creation. Out of his love, he can do no other than sacrifice and pursue and go after that which is lost. And the specifics of that plan, it's not a generic love for creation. It's a relentless pursuit of creation through the sending of his son. The second person of the Trinity, the word of God, the expression of God, comes, and in verse 14 we're told, becomes flesh. So the truth of the incarnation, here's how we would describe it here in your worship guide. It would be this, this action. The divine word of God, okay, the second person of the Trinity. The Father does not become human. In the baby Jesus, you're not seeing the Father turn into a man. You're not seeing the Spirit become human. You're seeing the second person, the word of God, take to himself a complete and full human nature. This is the word the church has used to describe what happens in the incarnation. The second person of the Trinity 
adds to himself, takes on in a perfect union a human nature. Now, a nature is a set of characteristics that is essential to experience life. And different kinds of things have different kinds of natures, different kinds of characteristics. So for a human nature, there are certain things that are true of all humans. For a human being to exist, they have to have these kind of characteristics and attributes. So you have to have a body and a soul. You have to be able to experience certain things, okay? You have to have a mind and will and emotion. And then the incarnation, the scriptures say, the word of God becomes flesh, takes on all the characteristics of what it means for a human being to live. Notice it doesn't say he pretended to be flesh. It doesn't say he entered into flesh as if he zipped on another man. Or as if he was kind of wearing a mask like a a scuba diver putting on a whale suit and going down into the ocean. Or on the inside, he's still really a human. He's just kind of put on a suit. No, he fully enters into what it means to exist as a human being. And this is where you get these, these crazy paradoxes when it comes to Christmas time. So you've got the eternal God who's created all things, is everywhere at once, knows all things, is unlimited in power and joy and love, and yet grows as a fetus in the womb of Mary. God. The eternal God. A fetus. Floating about in amniotic fluid. Coming out through the birthing canal. Crying in a manger. I believe the hymn gets it maybe wrong. Christ, no crying did he do. I don't know, but you babies cry. They're loud. He's crying. And we, we continue the gamut, right? Everything that's true about a human being is true about the word of God incarnate. He grows up. He learns how to crawl. He skins his knee. He learns languages. He learns relationships. He goes through puberty. Probably has a girl who has a crush on him. <laughs> he works. He makes. He creates. He studies the Bible. He learns the truths about God and God's people from his mother. God has become a human, has experienced human life, human nature, takes it on in himself. Now, this is kind of a confusing concept, right? Okay, God is now a human. Um, so, so the church has kind of, kind of continued to detail out language to be able to explain this truth. The next thing we'd say is this. What's happening in Jesus is you have... Two distinct natures, the divine nature, all the characteristics that are true about God, and human nature, all the characteristics that are true about humanity, have now been united in one person, in the divine person, in the word of God, in Jesus. So there's only one person to Jesus. This is a big kind of key you've got to avoid. Jesus is not a schizophrenic person. He's not like 100% God, 100% human, not united, right? As if there's like a switch he turns on and off. Sometimes he's human, sometimes he's God, and he goes back and forth between these two personalities. This is not... Multi-personality syndrome, okay, in Jesus. They're fully united in this one divine person. And everything that Jesus experiences, God experiences. The Word of God experiences. Which is why we say, Mary is the mother of God, Theotokos. Not that she, right, created the Trinity, but that the baby that came out of her was none other than the person of the Word of God. The triune Second person of the Trinity, eternal, divine person. This is why we say God suffers. And you say, well, God can't suffer. If, it, if God means anything, it means that God can't suffer. Well, the incarnate God can suffer because he's taken on human nature. 
That's why we say on the cross, God himself dies. We say, well, divine nature, divinity can't die. Well, divinity that's taken on humanity can experience such things. This paradox, this, this mysterious, beautiful truth that we find here in the incarnation. Now, it's important to realize that Jesus doesn't stop being God. This is not a, 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 an action of divine suicide, okay? Where Jesus pulls the rope on being God. Instead, he's at one and the same time, both divine and human. So Jesus is both fully God and fully human, and for all of eternity, the incarnation, God becoming flesh, is an eternal act. It's not a temporary thing. That's why we, we kind of point out when we talk about it, at the resurrection, at the ascension, Jesus doesn't de-incarnate. Does that make sense? He doesn't kind of shed his body and go back into this simple divine state. No, there's, there's a human now ruling over all of creation. The incarnation is an eternal act. Again, to, to kind of further our minds, the bombshell of the incarnation is this. Right now, because of the incarnation, a human being is a member of the Trinity. Christ. The Word become flesh. Taking on all that it means to be a human, human nature. Except for, Christians would say, sin. He's experienced all of humanity except for sin. And at first glance, this might make us think that Jesus is not fully human. How can he be fully human if you haven't really sinned? Is sin not a proper characteristic of being human? I mean, look around. We see humans, and it seems like an essential characteristic. To be a human, you must fall and fail. But in fact, upon further thinking, um, some of our best kind of Christian thinkers have realized to be truly human is to be created in God's image, which means to obey. And then further... To not give in to temptation allows you to experience temptation even further. So let me spell this out for you. Say you're an alcoholic. You are sitting there, okay, at home. There's a, a, a glass of alcohol, okay, over to your, to your right. And you start to feel tempted to go have some. You know you shouldn't. You know it would be wrong, but you start to feel tempted. So you sit there for a minute, and the temptation wages inside of you, Okay. I know none of you have ever been tempted with any sin. You're all like, this sounds so unfamiliar. What is this like? Okay, something you shouldn't do, but you want to do. I don't understand. Just bear with me. You're sitting there. The temptation is waging. And then after a minute, you give in. You go and you fall. You go and you take the glass and you start drinking. Now, let me ask you this. Who has experienced the depths of that temptation, the depth of that calling to sin further? The person who gives in after a minute or the person who gives in after 30 minutes? Probably the person who gives in after 30 minutes. It's actually a really easy thing for the person who gives in after a minute. It gets harder and harder, more agonizing and more agonizing the longer you hold out. Now imagine there's one who never gives into it. He would be, in fact, the only one who truly knows how deep sin goes. Who truly knows how agonizing it is to be tempted and to live as a human being in this fallen world. If anything, Jesus' sinlessness read through the scriptures means he can understand more than we can what it's like to be a human, what it's like to experience the rawness and depth of darkness that sometimes characterizes our lives. In the incarnation, the word become flesh. The divine person, the word of God, the second person of the Trinity, takes on human nature and how exist in one person with two natures combined in a perfect union. If you want a big fancy word for this, call this the hypostatic union. 
But there's a union of natures and the one hypostasis, the one person of the word of God. So this is what's happening in the incarnation. This is the what of the incarnation, okay? So to go back to our phrase, the son of God became man so that men can become sons and daughters of God. You have the what of the incarnation, the son of God became man. And then you have the why of incarnation so that you and I, humans, beforehand burdened by the fall, excluded from God's triune life, now may come to share in it, may be adopted as sons and daughters. I want to show you uh, another passage. Um, go to Romans 5 for me. Romans chapter 5, to kind of flesh this out, the second part of the saying, you and I become sons and daughters of God. So Christ becomes a human, takes on human nature, so that he might act on behalf of all humans, that he might be a representative man, that his actions might have universal consequences. So look in Romans 5. We'll pick it up in verse 12 here. Romans 5, verse 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all sinned. So what's happened here is, because of Adam, the first human being, sin and death have come into the world. And we have all likewise sinned. Verse 13. For sin was indeed in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more of the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. Verse 17, key in here. For if because of one man's trespass, Adam's, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Again, verse 18, key in. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through the righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Paul here compares the, the being and the actions of Adam and Christ. Adam, as the first human, stands in a sort of universal relationship to all of humanity. When he sins, sin and death enter into the world and kind of screw things up for the rest of us. You and I, whether we like it or not, are born in a world that's already fallen, that's already broken. We've inherited certain things. We've inherited these consequences, this condemnation, this corruptibility, this death that has come in because of sin. Now, this is not to say necessarily that you and I are guilty for Adam's sin. It's just to say that we suffer the consequences, much in the same way that a son might not be guilty for his father's alcoholism, but yet suffers the consequences of his father's bad decisions. Does that make sense? We come into this world and it's broken and we likewise sin and contribute to the darkness of it. But through the incarnation, a new man has arisen as a representative of humanity, taking on human nature. And his obedience, his life now brings life, brings forgiveness, brings justification, brings the free <coughs> gift of righteousness, brings eternal life. 
the Son of God became man so that men might become sons and daughters of God. We might say this, the incarnation was necessary for Christ to share his life and victory with us. The church has said it's necessary for Christ to be both fully man and fully God for salvation to be accomplished. So often we focus on Christ's actions and neglect his being, who he is. But Christ's actions are only effective for us because of who he is. Because he is true God and true man. Because he is truly and fully human, what happens to Christ is able to affect what happens to all of humanity. He's able to deal with what's wrong with humanity. He's able to die for humanity. He's able to raise for humanity. That's why Paul says, you've died with Christ. You've risen with Christ. You've been mysteriously united with Christ. He is the new leader of humanity in the same way that Adam was. And because Christ is fully God, he's able to accomplish this victory. He's able to share this life that he has. And you and I, the scriptures proclaim with a loud voice, are now adopted. We're adopted into the divine family as sons and daughters by grace. Which is an important distinction here. So, so Jesus, the word of God, is a son by nature. He's a son by right. But you and I now are sons and daughters by gift, by grace. Jesus once was the only begotten son, but now he's the firstborn of many brothers and sisters. He comes so that he might have some family, so that we might share in the relationship that he's had with the Father for all of eternity, that we might participate, we might be adopted into the divine family. So my parents a few years ago adopted a little girl. She was at the time, I think, eight years old, a little Hispanic girl. And she got to, because of the adoption, come out of a rough life. Uh, She, by circumstances again not of her own, was born into a situation that affected her negatively. She was not guilty for the things that had been done before her, but she certainly suffered for the things that had been done before her. And, and out of kind of this free act of love, right? I mean, nothing was forcing it. My parents adopted her and brought her into our family. Now, there are certain benefits with being in the Skinner family. You get good looks, okay? <clears throat> but you get to live in Sugarland, which is much nicer than where a lot of people live. And you get to go to a nice school, and you get to have nice health care, and you get to have a loving family and grandparents who love you and spoil you and, and brothers and sisters and, and all kinds of things. And, and this little girl became my sister and became a daughter of my parents. Now, there's still a distinction between me and her. And don't worry, I hold this over her head all the time. <laughs> I'm a son by nature, right? I'm a Skinner by bloodline. I physically came from my mother and my father. We're intrinsically connected in a way that she's not. But yet she gets to enjoy all the rights of being a Skinner. By gift. By grace. She's been brought in. And now she's a daughter. Now she's a sister. This is the way the scriptures paint you and I as a result of Christ's work on our behalf. As a result of his incarnation. His coming and taking on flesh. Whereas he is a son By nature, you and I get to be sons and daughters by grace, as a gift. And whereas we don't intrinsically deserve the love that we receive from the Father, we're not intrinsically able to give it back to Him, yet all the same, we benefit, we enjoy it, we get to participate in it. The Son of of God became man so that, that men might become sons and daughters of God. Lastly, in the Incarnation, and we'll explore this in the weeks to come, God is revealed to us as eternally and fully with us and for us. In the most 
literal way possible, God is with us. He actually takes on humanity. In Christ, God becomes at one with humanity. The atonement is accomplished. At one minute. He actually takes on humanity. The divine and the human touch and meet and intermingle in such a way that what's wrong with humanity is overcome and the gifts of divinity are given to humanity. The life of the triune God. God is revealed as the one who understands us, the one who pursues us, the one who from all of eternity has existed in self-sacrificial love for us. When we see this baby crying, we're saying God himself in an act of humility and condescension and accommodation take on human flesh so that you and I might be able to share in what's his, might be able to enjoy the life that he's had from all of eternity. I'll end with a poem written by Thomas Watson on the Incarnation. He says this, He, Christ, was poor that he might make us rich. He was born of a virgin that we might be born of God. He took our flesh that he might give us his spirit. He lay in the manger that we may lay in paradise. He came down from heaven that he might bring us up to heaven. That the Ancient of Days should be born, that he who thunders in the heavens should cry in the cradle, that he who rules the stars should suck the breast, that a virgin should conceive, that Christ should be made of a woman and of that woman which himself he made, that the branch should bear the vine, that the mother should be younger than the child she bare, and the child in the womb bigger than the mother. That the human nature should not be God, yet be one with God. Christ taking flesh is a mystery. We shall never fully understand until we come to heaven. But if our hearts be not rocks, this love of Christ should affect us. Behold the love that passes all knowledge. Let's pray together.